Hello, welcome to the Jew3 Project Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jew3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew3 Project Podcast. As always, I'm Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew3 Project, and today we're joined by a very special guest, Dr. Mary Beth Matthews. Welcome, Dr. Matthews. Thank you so much thank for having so much. me on. I'm happy to see you. <laughs> happy to see you, too. And um, I heard about your book through Dr. Anthony Bradley. He's been tweeting about it Um for the last few days. So uh, it's gotten a lot of buzz on Twitter. Um, and I heard it was, uh, it sold out at one point on Amazon. <laughs> I think it did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, I, I do know it got number one new release in Baptist history and in religious intolerance and persecution. <laughs> oh, wow. You're best selling author now. Congratulations. Um, so for those who don't know uh, who you are, could you just give a little bit of background about yourself? Sure, sure. I'm happy to. Um, so I'm an associate professor of uh, religion at the University of Mary Washington. I've been teaching there for what about 10 years now. Uh, I got my PhD at the University of Virginia uh, back in 2002. Before I went to graduate school, I actually worked on Capitol Hill. So I worked for nine years. Uh, first for a senator and then for a representative and then pitched it all and went to graduate school. <laughs> awesome. That's, that's cool. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about this book uh, and the inspiration behind it. What inspired you uh, to write the book Doctrine and Race? I actually fell into this book. Um, I had done my dissertation on why we think of the South as fundamentalist. And when I had been writing that book, the book that came out of my dissertation, one of the things that kept bugging me was all these white fundamentalists had gone North. And I kept thinking, why are all these Southern white guys going North? What is it about that? And I wanted to delve into why they did that. So that was really my original intent. And I found precious little information about why they went north. Uh, but as I read more and more of their letters and their sermons, uh, articles about them, I thought these men are talking about race in ways that, uh, that have some issues, right? So these are men who are talking about fundamentalism in ways that don't... Uh, acknowledge that it could reach out to other groups. So they were they were very much conscious of leading what they thought was a revivalist movement, but it was a revivalist movement for white people. Mm -hmm. And this made me think, okay, well, how did, say, African Americans respond to this? So I started researching, and, and it's not easy to do, to find the copies of the Star of Zion or the National Baptist Union Review, but the more I read them, the more I thought, the people who are writing in these papers know everything about fundamentalism, but the white fundamentalists who are running the, the movement know nothing about African Americans. And so that's when the book really began to take shape. And, uh, you know, then it became, well, am I going to make this half and half? Is it going to be half, you know, the white fundamentalists, half African Americans? 
And I realized, no, I think that this really needs to be a book that that deals with African-Americans only and with white uh, fundamentalists as sort of an introductory chapter to set the stage. Mm -hmm. So that's how I fell into it. (laughs) And what made you choose the time frame? Uh, so this was a time when fundamentalism as a movement was emerging as a formal movement. So there were people who were arguing that fundamentalism had been around for years and years, but people didn't realize it. But this was when people like uh, uh, William Bell Riley and uh, folks like that were saying, we need to have a new movement. Um, and they were calling themselves fundamentalists. Curtis Lee Laws, who was a white Baptist minister from Virginia was when he coined the term. And so I decided that this period in between World War I and World War II, when everything was beginning, was what I wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was the most startling discovery as it relates to race and the tension that you discovered while writing this book? Most uh, startling discovery, that's a good one. That's a good question. Um, so probably the first startling discovery says more about myself as a white historian and and someone who's you know had white privilege my whole life was to realize how absolutely keyed in on everything african american ministers were i mean they knew they knew the players they knew the ideas they knew the battles that were going on with white fundamentalists and you know it was one of those you know, moments where you say, duh, of course they did, because this mattered when you live in a world where you have to know not just yourself, but the people who who other you, the people who oppress you. So that was, was a startling moment. Um, another startling moment was finding um, the references and then a whole set of sermons and columns by a man named Eli George Biddle, who had fought in the Civil War. He had been part of uh, a Massachusetts infantry unit and had fought in the Civil War and was still alive and still thriving in this time period and writing about just such a wide variety of ideas and topics dabbling in both uh, dispensational premillennialism, which he pitched pretty quickly, Mm-hmm. Um, reading new translations of the Bible that fundamentalists probably wouldn't have liked, and and commenting about all of this, and to watch how he just took everything that probably came across his desk, read it, and just wrung whatever out of it that he could understand and use to to edify his congregation and also uh, the AME Zion Church was just amazing to watch. Wow, I'm excited to uh, learning more about him uh, now that you mentioned him. Um, as you talk through, you know, how he was reading things that fundamentals wouldn't read, what, were fundamentals kind of trying to paint uh, Black Christians as liberal in order to kind of not engage with their ideas? They actually were trying to paint them as ignorant. Um, so white fundamentalists spent a lot of time 
arguing that African Americans were childlike, that they were impressionable, that they were easily led. Um, and this is something that people like John Roach Stratton did, you know, moved from Georgia to New York and then positioned himself in New York City as an expert on Southern African Americans. And, you know, his, his view, um, Riley's view, all these folks, they had this idea that African Americans would easily go along with whatever the last thing they had heard was. And so they warned that the danger was that if you got these liberals in there, if you had social gospel people coming in, for example, or, uh, you know, people who were modernists, that African Americans would quickly jump on that bandwagon. Mm-hmm. What what ways did um, fundamentalists exclude uh, African Americans from their organizations? So it's funny they they have these organizations where they're really just talking to each other. Um, it's almost like today we see on Facebook or other social media people talking to their own group of people. These are men who knew each other from, say, Baptist or Presbyterian meetings um, and and corresponded with each other and then reached out to affluent white people to help bankroll, say, the distribution of the fundamentals, the little books that started the fundamentalist movement. Um, I didn't see any overt uh, oppression or exclusion. There was nothing in the in their files that said, oh, a black man came today and we turned him away. In fact, there were usually times when they were using African Americans for performative reasons. Let's have an African American singer come and sing at our meeting because it brings everyone to tears. Um, which is, if you think about it, another way of othering African Americans, of saying you, you, your performance here is important to us, but not your other contributions. Mm-hmm. So they, they tended just to only deal with each other. And as they did that, these white fundamentalists assumed that the world that they were living in was the world around them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they just didn't, they didn't see African Americans. Mm-hmm. And uh, from your research, why do you, does it kind of show that they still kind of thought they were less than or they use kind of doctrine um, as a way to kind of try to find a loophole from engaging? Yeah, so they they definitely spent a lot of time saying we need to make sure that these poor, impressionable African-Americans don't end up, you know, uh, in the modernist churches. And they they spent a lot of time uh, circulating amongst themselves stories about how, you know, they could be easily led. They they position themselves as people who were such experts that they could then commission someone else to go into African-American communities. And they spent a lot of time saying, we need to get black ministers to preach to black congregations. Um, and, and they really felt that this was the way to do it. Um, so you segregate the, the uh, kind of moral and spiritual guidance here. Mm-hmm. That's that's so fascinating. I, I see that kind of going on now in uh, 2017 still. So uh, your book is, is very relevant uh, because history seems to uh, repeat itself time and time again. So it sure I, does. <laughs> grateful for your contribution. What is some of the feedback you've been getting from? Have you had any uh, white 
um, evangelicals uh, reach out to you about the book and give you any feedback? No, not yet. So the only people who I've heard from are other scholars who've been, you know, saying things like, uh, uh, so it, it, actually I should back up. It wasn't easy to get this book published. Um, it, it went through some revisions and I got some pushback, um, partly because scholars right now are busy in a sort of argument about whether the term fundamentalism is even something we can work with. And there was a number of people who got caught up in that. Um, most folks, though, uh, who I've heard from in the scholarly community are really happy about this because as scholars, we tend to follow our subjects and sometimes that leads us into the same old ruts that they were in. So the history of fundamentalism in this country has been a history of white fundamentalism and people really haven't spent time looking at African-American, Latino fundamentalism, Asian fundamentalism, or conservative evangelicalism. So it's always been driven by white actors and more and more people are beginning to scholars are beginning to push back on that and and try to find some ways but this was i think one of the first to say look there was some interaction but not the way you th might think it would happen mm -hmm. so i want to back up a little bit because i'm 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 i assume that our listeners knew what fundamental fundamentalism was so could you define that term for those who are listening and like okay, can, can somebody explain what they're talking about? What is fundamentalism? <laughs> sure, sure. So um, I like to think of it as, as um, a subset of evangelicalism. So if evangelicalism is the bigger picture, those Protestants who believe in the importance of uh, the Bible, Bible as revelation, the need to convert other people, you know, the need to reach out to other people, and the need to lead a holy life. Um, fundamentalism is a form of it that developed in the 20th century, led by the, the white men, largely in my first chapter, who said, we have to do this because the world is getting worse. Um, the the you know horrors of the first world war. Um, they saw riots around them and and strikes and said all of this is is evidence that the world is getting worse. Um, who then added sort of uh, an emphasis, an insistence that you have to believe in all those evangelical tenets, and they added in that idea of a kind of end of time view that we have this really long name for dispensational premillennialism uh, <laughs> that you can look to the world around you and see signs and then pull out your Bible and, and say here, according to this passage, this is a sign that the end of time is coming. And these uh, evangelicals who were fundamentalists, white fundamentalists, really did believe they were living in the end of time. Um, now, there are other scholars who will argue with me about this, but I think the ones I was looking at really did think this. And they make this argument uh, that it is important as fundamentalists to believe this and to 
say anyone who rejects this is not a Christian. And you, you see a lot of the white fundamentalists writing that if you don't believe in the virgin birth, if you don't believe in dispensational and premillennialism, if you don't believe in any of these things, then you are not a Christian. Um, uh, J. Gresham Machen, who wasn't a fundamentalist, he, he refused to call himself a fundamentalist, did write a book in the early 20s called Christianity and Liberalism, where he was trying to say that you can't be liberal and be a Christian. Mm-hmm. So that's usually the term that, that, that's how we define fundamentalism generally. And so um, for the, 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 fir- the first chapter you dealt with, um, the white, um, white fundamentalists, um, can you kind of just walk us through just overviews of the other chapters without giving too much away? Because we still want everyone to buy. <laughs> 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 sure. Like a little tease. <laughs> sure. So uh, I, in the next chapter, after, you know, dealing with the white fundamentalists, I look at how African-Americans, both in secular media and in denominational newspapers, followed the fundamentalist modernist battles, how they knew about this. Um, and they they showed this keen interest in what was happening and spent time saying, look, fundamentalism, those people who are arguing about this, they're white. This is not something we're arguing about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that's why chapter two is what is the matter with white Baptists. Um, uh, so the, the book also has chapters on how African-American denominations, and I picked four denominations, two Baptist and two AME denominations, to, uh, to kind of explain how they wrestled with what this meant for themselves. Then um, I move into uh, how African-Americans sympathized in those denominations with white fundamentalist views of social problems uh, that are not related to race. So social problems that they saw in the time, like rising divorce rates, um, uh, teaching of evolution in schools, things like that, that they they wrestled with just as the white fundamentalists had. Um, And then I think the the real payoff in the book is the last chapter with the uh, African-American evangelicals making their own ecclesiology and saying, you know, the Bible says that you have to believe in God and you have to treat other people nicely. And because white people are excluding us from churches, are lynching us, are discriminating against us, they're the ones who aren't Christian. So it became for them this issue of it's not about, you know, do you believe in these five tenets? It's how you treat your neighbor. Mm Mm. And that's important because I, I always say there's if the orthodoxy doesn't match the so-called orthopraxy, then you're not going to get anybody to listen to your, <laughs> your, your quote unquote orthodoxy. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly what they were thinking. <laughs> if you can't treat me like a human being, uh, you're probably not going to get a lot of your teaching um, to be effective in my life. So Right. Right. <laughs> So I think that that is a very um, good point of the book, uh, a way to kind of summarize it, uh, because I think, you know, you see that going on now within evangelicalism. Um, so it, it is very, it's, it's funny that it's so close 
to what's going on now. So you wrote your book at like the right time. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. It, it was the publication date was January 20th, 2017. And I joked before the election with friends, I said, you know, makes a great inauguration gift. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if I'd known ahead of time what was happening, I might have changed some of the examples in the introduction, you know, because I, I talk about uh, an African-American Mormon representative from Utah and people, you know, in the political science realm being confused about why would an African-American woman be a Mormon? And, you know, I think I could come up with a whole other set of examples now to put in that introduction. <laughs> I have to do a, a revision. <laughs> yeah, there you go. For the second edition. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, how African-Americans were dealing with the rising divorce rates and evolution. What ways did they uh, try to engage those ideas? Uh, mostly from, you know, because I was reading denominational newspapers, these are ministers writing to other ministers largely, although, you know, a dedicated group of lay people would, would subscribe to. They're mostly giving each other ideas of use, you know, to use in sermons. Um, mm -hmm. And in many ways, the, the things that they're saying sound exactly like what the white evangelicals are talking about. You need to preach that uh, divorce is bad and that, you know, uh, Jesus had fewer examples of what you could get divorced for than Moses did. So, you know, make sure your congregation knows this or, uh, you know, try to make sure that the young people in your congregation understand that they need to be uh, courting with a parent involved. You know, there needs to be parental supervision when the young man comes to visit your house, that sort of thing. When they got to evolution, though, things were a bit more complicated because part of what was happening was that you had some ministers saying, it's fine, we can teach evolution in the schools, this is not a problem, and giving a kind of twisted understanding of how you could say this. Um, like, well, you need to believe every part of the New Testament, but some of them are saying things like, you know, the story in Genesis of the creation, that's really just folklore. And so here they are, they've been saying you need to believe the Bible, but they were beginning to do what the fun white fundamentalists had accused them of, which was saying parts of it, you don't have to believe literally. Mm -hmm. So they, they wrestled with that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think I argue a little bit that part of what they're wrestling with is also their place in society because these were very educated people who had degrees and, you know, had had exposure to a lot of different ideas who saw science changing around them but also felt the pull of, you know, what they would have called the old-time religion. So they were really torn. Mm -hmm. So they were just trying to balance their education with their kind of upbringing, traditional upbringing. Yeah. Wrestling in that way. And much like many are now, uh, that's kind of why we have the Jew 3 Project as an apologetics organization to help people kind of navigate through what they're learning in scholarship and what they've kind of been brought up if they've been in a traditional Baptist Pentecostal church. Did you do any with uh do any research with Black Pentecostalism during this? No, and that's something I wish I you know I could do, and hopefully someday I'll be able to do that. Um, I decided just to stick with 
uh, Black Baptists and Black Methodists in part because the sources were easier to come by, even easier than for Black Pentecostals. And it's funny because I also expected from some of the research that colleagues of mine have done and the fine work they've done to, to see more discussion of Pentecostalism. It, it was almost the elephant in the room. They weren't talking about it. Um, they, they, every once in a while, you'd get a little comment along the lines of, you know, those people. But it was really few and far between. Mm -hmm. So I think that they just hadn't quite comprehended how to deal with this, that this was new and different for them. And they, the, these Baptists and Methodists said, we don't like that, but we don't quite know how to handle it. What else that we haven't already mentioned, would you like people to know about the book? Or if you are like, man, I wish I could say this to my, to this audience about um, your book. Um, I think one of the other surprises for me that people might uh, wonder about is the location of the book. Like, where does this take the book take place? It's almost geographyless. So most of the the people who are writing were in the South, but the Great Migration doesn't really come up in the sources. It was not that people were not saying as we are lo re seeing relocation to the North, we are seeing you know this kind of issue come up more. It's it's almost a, a, a strange sort of virtual reality um, that it was existing in print, not necessarily saying we're grounded here in Nashville, Tennessee, or you know uh, in uh, North Carolina, for example. So the book itself is is so print based that in some ways it's very much a, a, a non location book. Mm -hmm. That's so. that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how can uh, people get in contact with you? How can people get the book? I know it's on Amazon, but I know that at one point it sold out. I think it's back up and it's on Kindle. Uh, but there's another way to purchase it as well. Uh, so you can buy it also through the University of Alabama Press website as well. They have copies. Um, and that's probably the, you know, the only other alternative. This is what happens when you have a small university press and they're not ready for somebody's book to get really popular. <laughs> <laughs> but if folks want to get in touch with me, um, they can email me. Um, I'm at, uh, M Matthews with one T at umw.edu. Happy to, to have conversations. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, uh, at Mary Beth Math. And I have a website too, although it's been a little quiet because of all the book stuff. Um, and it's marybethmatthews.org. Awesome. How long did it take you to complete this? Um, the book probably took, wow, that's a good question, a good five or six years. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, so at, at Mary Washington, where I teach, which is in Fredericksburg, Virginia, we have a, a fairly heavy teaching load. We teach four courses a semester. So mm -hmm. I had to do this on the weekends, in the summer. Um, and luckily, I don't live too far from Howard University Divinity School Library. 
Uh, and the folks there were so helpful. And he's, you know, I was able to run over there um, on Saturdays and do some work. So it took a while. <laughs> awesome. Do you teach any classes on, all right, will this be a class in the future, um, Dr. Murray? Because because we um, we tend to be generalists at my school, probably not. Although I do teach a class on African American religions, um, I'll be teaching it in the mm -hmm. fall. And uh, you know, I teach uh, just basically anything in American religious history. So I I have to be a generalist. Um, I have brought up some of this in another course: religious tolerance and intolerance in America. Um, so you know, it'll it'll come back up in that class and. You know, my students often inform how I see my scholarship. It's it's very much a, a, a symbiotic relationship. I bounce ideas off of them. I listen to what they say about the world around them or what they're saying about the readings, and they give me a lot of good insights. Mm -hmm. That's good. That's yeah. awesome. Uh I have one more question because you uh, said something that uh, kind of uh, struck me, you said you do African-American religions and a lot of what we're dealing with um, as of late is um, like uh, black, what would be considered cults, uh, like Hebrew Israelites and Kemet's Egyptologists. Do you go over any of those in, in your uh, course? Yep, we do a little bit of that. Um, we, we do uh, Islam in America too. We do nation of Islam, we, we get we get all sorts of things going on in that class. And that's why I call it plural, you know, African American religions, mm -hmm. um, so that the students from day one know that there's no one black church or, you know, no one black faith. Uh, and, and they usually roll with it quite well. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. What has been your thoughts on uh, Kemet's or Egyptologists? Have you seen a lot of research or things that you pull from, or what resources? Uh, I I actually haven't seen that much on it, and so we tend to, you know, just kind of glance off of it. Mm -hmm. So, gotcha. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Matthews. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I encourage everyone to go get the book, Dr. and Race. I think it's going to be a blessing to you. And I see some of my friends already have it on Twitter and are <laughs> tweeting about it and uh, posting about it on, on Facebook and Instagram. So it uh, looks like you got a hit out there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast. As always, you can catch all our past episodes at www.jude3project.com, or you can subscribe on iTunes and Google Play by searching the Jude 3 Project. You can also get better equipped with our Bible engagement app by searching the App Store, Google Play, or Apple App Store by searching the Jude 3 Project, and that will help you better engage scripture on a daily basis. If you would like to donate to the Jude 3 Project, go to jude3project.com and hit the Donate tab. In addition, you can follow us on, in, on social media by searching at Jude 3 Project on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and YouTube. Remember, here at the Jude 3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.